Welcome to Liberating Race, a podcast from the Shift Network about race in the past, present, and transformational future. For more than a millennia, the idea of race has proved a powerful force in daily life as people organize themselves into families, communities, and ultimately nations. But we begin this journey with the real question. Why? I'm Joy Donnell, and with the help of my co-hosts Aliyah Mahone and Jillian Shelley, we will begin an eight-episode discussion of humankind's greatest historically self-inflicted burden and where it might take us in the future. I'm glad that we get to do this together, Jillian, because, you know, when we first met, a little voice inside of me said, even though you were coming from what I call an activist kind of place a bit, you know, the usual party line that's given, you know, if you've decided to be an ally, that this is what you should say. That was my impression when I first met you. I think it was a, what was it, woker than thou? (laughs) Yes, right. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, (laughs) but I can see something else there. And I was so heartened by the fact that when I, you know, took, made the courage, you know, had the, the courage to say something about it, that you responded in the way that you did. And we got to really, you know, take each other in and literally get to see the truth of the other person. Because, you know, we all have flaws. And um, so I just want to say that I am so happy to be doing this with you. Because even though we look like we're on different ends of the spectrum, what brings us into the middle of that beautiful, magnificent circle is that it's genuine what we want to do around racial healing. But when did you first start feeling that you needed to step into a leadership role so that you could be a part of the healing that needs to happen? There's two different sort of questions in that. And one of them is, when did I first start thinking about it? And if I'm being honest, I started thinking about it before I actually decided to take a leadership role in healing the self-inflicted and self-inflicted pain. So I first knew that there was pain around eight years old. And that's a, a whole story that maybe we'll have some time for at some point. But really, when I decided to take a leadership position and really take a stand for healing the racial divide was fairly recently, actually. It was right after Ahmaud Arbery's death. And I was living with a good friend of mine who's a black man who every single morning without fail would go out for a morning run. And it just was a part of his morning ritual that I really celebrated. And so when I saw that Ahmaud Arbery was gunned down in the middle of the street on a run, I was in complete uh, shock. And I know that, you know, now looking back and looking at what I didn't know, for many people, it wasn't that shocking. But for me to really see that this could happen to my landmate, who I love dearly and um, care for a lot, I decided that I I couldn't continue to live my life in the same way that I had. It was like I, all the lights were turned on and I couldn't uh, look away. 
as human beings, there are certain things between us, like the fact that we breathe, the fact that we love, the fact that people that are in our world, we care deeply about them, the fact that we have dreams, you know, all of those things are so human. And when somebody dies, we think about those things. I think about those things first and foremost. But if I were to answer the same question as to when I decided to be a leader, you said you were about eight. Um, I think that I was probably about 11 when I recognized I was visiting uh, my relatives. I have mom's side of the family, Alabama, dad's side of the family, Mississippi. And I was visiting my relatives and some an incident happened. I don't want to get into the story about it. But I thought, this is so dehumanizing. Speaking about humanness, it's so dehumanizing. Why are people like this? Sometimes it was as simple as the men wanted my grandfather, who was literally 80 years old, to say yes, sir, to them, white men in Alabama. Like, right, yes, sir. Okay, like he's old enough to be your grandfather. He was my grandfather. And you expect him to say yes, sir, to you. At that point around 11, I decided that I actually wanted to become, I don't know what I would call it, because I don't believe in the fight. I believe in the, the change and the transformation. So I wanted to become a transformation engineer. Can I make that up? You know, like make that phrase. I wanted to become a transformation engineer so that I could actually pioneer with others what needed to happen to really put this to bed? Because I thought this is like ridiculous. But then later when I learned about all the death that was um, attached to this whole thing about race and racism, and then I had the personal experience myself. So I grew up in the inner city of Detroit. Um, as I said, I had a multiracial family. Those, some of those people were actually in the South. It was always dangerous. There was always the threat of harm. There was always the threat of death. Um, my father left Mississippi so he wouldn't get lynched at the age of, I think he said 15. He dropped out of school, decided that he couldn't stay in the place where he was born because he might be killed. Um, and so he went for his whole life with like an eighth grade education because he never got to go back to school because of that, right? But, you know, I grew up in the inner city of Detroit. I started my life as an adult when I was about age 16. It was, you know, not something I'm proud of, but I was a teenage mom. And I had my son, Sean, at that age. And Sean grew up in the inner city of Detroit as well. And the plight of black men in the United States was such that Without giving all the details of the story, I would say that my son decided that he would rather no longer live, so he died from suicide at the age of 24. All of his peers, literally, he was an only child and he had lots of really close friends and cousins and the whole group of guys that would be together from the ages of like, you know, they started off when they were about 15, 16, and until somewhere around 24, 25 for most of them. All of them were either dead, one was in prison, and my son died by suicide. So that's when I really decided that I was going to step into being a 
transformation engineer. How could I not? <sighs> yeah. I feel really moved, Aaliyah, by what you shared about your childhood growing up in Detroit and the hardship that you faced and the story of your grandfather being asked to reference, you know, people much younger than him that I'm assuming were white to address them as sir. And just the, yeah, the dehumanization and the humiliation in that. And I want to share, too, a moment that I first knew I was white. And this happened when I was eight years old. And I grew up in an all-white town in Vermont, like the whitest state <laughs> in the U.S. And there were 2,000 people in that town, and I lived a very, very sheltered childhood. And super, like very safe, um, just very white. But I didn't have anything telling me that I was white because everything that re was reflected to me in the media and in my school, everything I was learning was all mostly white people because that's who's telling the, the predominant um, dominant story. And I was watching the Sunday cartoons because it's the only time that my mom would let me watch TV and an ad came on that was for World Vision. And it was a, a Christian organization, a nonprofit. And all I remember was looking at this image of a child, and I'm eight years old watching this, and I see another child with black skin looking back at me through the, through the television. And I see that they're really sick and they're really... Uh, I just see that like, their bones protruding through their skin, and it's a really horrendous image. And my little eight-year-old heart and mind, I just break down and start crying, and I had no idea that there was a whole reality that so many people are living that I didn't know about. And so I went running to my mom, and I was so mad at her. I was like, how could you not tell me? That, there, that this is happening, that there's so much suffering. That was a really, really powerful moment for me because we decided to sponsor a child and this child's name was Yvonne and we wrote letters back and forth to each other for um, almost a decade. And I really got to have a deep connection with this person and learn about what their life was like. And... And still there was a sense that like that wasn't happening here, that that was happening, you know, overseas, that there was suffering somewhere else. So it's been a journey for me also in this vein of what does it mean to take a stand and not be a rescuer and not mm -hmm. be a white savior? But what is actually my role as a white person to unlearn my own internalized racism and make the choices in my daily life that's been a big big journey for me mm. wow you know i always like to take a pause when we've shared so, a piece of ourselves with another person because i feel like it's a sacred exchange you know this thing that you're talking about about the white savior can you say more about that because your your first introduction to people with dark skin sounded as if you know what seemed to make sense was to save them from their life and of course i'm very glad that you did 
um, and all the other people that have helped those who are in desperate need. You know, when you think about it now, some years later, long years after being eight, what, 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 you know, where is that with you now about this whole idea of being a white savior? It's a great question. It's like <laughs> the, it feels like the question that I'm, I'm walking with and holding and unpacking right now for myself, which is how do I learn to sit with my own pain and not immediately run to a fix or a, a quick solution? So there's this delicate balance between taking action and not just sitting here and wallowing, but also not, not making it my burden because that's a kind of narcissism as well of thinking that I could actually do anything to fix this crazy, complex, terrible, you know, story and system of white supremacy and racism. So it's really a paradox to sit with and and constantly question like, where am I coming from in this moment? Is it out of love? Is it out of uh, transformational engineering? Or is it to, <laughs> or is it to comfort my pain? Act one, what is race? Melanin, from the Greek melos, meaning pigment, found in the hair, eyes, feathers, scales, and the top layer of all human skin, with the exception of those of us who have albinism. Melanin levels in skin are genetically passed on to offspring in the same fashion of hair texture and eye color and is varied. Some people naturally produce more melanin and some less. This is due to initial adaptation for large amounts of sun exposure in the open fields of northern Africa. Then in a reverse adaptation, some human skin produced less melanin to make way for much-needed vitamin D in northern climates, where sunlight was no longer overabundant, but often rare. How oh, I love that topic of melanin. Mm. <laughs> you know, it sounds so scientific, doesn't it? I mean, it's like feathers have melanin? Wow. And what do we do with melanin? I mean, check that out. Like. Can you imagine that, like, you know, two birds with feathers saying, hey, I'm better than you because my melanin is lighter than yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow. I mean, really, it's just almost, I'm truly having a belly laugh when I think about that. Just how, 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 how we've been conditioned to have this frame that we put around skin color and hair texture, and we've made it into something that, as we said a few minutes ago, kills people because we have melanin. You know, ducks don't die because they have melanin, but humans do. Yeah, and that brings a whole new thing to pecking order. Pun intended, right? <laughs> yes. You know, the, the, the whole thing about the darker your skin is, um, it means something less. If I can just respond to that, I think... Yeah. What that brings up for me is just how such a simple difference can create such a complex territory of um, meaning, just so much layered onto this really minute difference in people and how that can, yeah, just as you said, spiral into a monstrosity of, um, of, of experience for people that have more melanin. 
in their skin. And I'm with you, Aaliyah. I'm like, what is that about? And why? Yeah. I've heard this before. I think it was Joy who said it. You know, people oftentimes focus their attention on the what, but not the why. So why would we select something that's so natural and make it into an instrument of destruction and devastation? In 1776, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, a Caucasian-German physician, introduced race theory, defining five categories of man as white, yellow, red, brown, and black. Blumenbach also claimed that Adam and Eve were Caucasian, or white, inhabitants of Asia, and that darker-skinned races evolved after. Blumenbach's theories were conveniently tied to the justification of slavery for the next 150 years. Modern science has since rejected any scientific category we know today as race. With the knowledge we have now about evolution, we know that skin color is a flexible trait inherited independently of other traits and is not associated with other aspects of a person's appearance or behavior. Penn State University anthropologist Dr. Nina Jablonski. Yet as Galileo would attest, Humankind's ability to stubbornly cling to an ingrained false narrative is great. But the truth persists. The Earth revolves around the sun, and race is not a scientific reality, but rather an invention of the mind and a transgression of the heart. I just feel like taking a deep breath after that one and mm-hmm. just taking that all in, you know, this... Scientist Johann Blumenbach, a white German who created race theory with these, you know, five different races, which, as we know, aren't just uh, five as, you know, five as different varieties of the same beauty and worthiness, but sort of five levels and that it's a hierarchy and just sitting with that being really tied to the justification of slavery for 150 years and yeah and how this the way that science really has been distorted and not just science but so many aspects but science being this way that we really make meaning of our world is also in on it (laughs) in on the Mm -hmm. justification of dehumanization for folks that have more melanin in their skin. And I'm just like, how? How did that, how did that happen? And how has it been able to continue for so long? Science, science is a beautiful thing, but people have to um, embrace science to order, in order to gain from it. That's the one thing that I want to say. There's a way that a lot of the people that relate to things like race theory that accept that as the possibility of truth or maybe their truth um, are not people that necessarily that read science journals but that's neither here nor there what what i want to say about this whole idea of race theory is that it didn't stop 150 years in other words it went for 150 years from blumenbach right? The German guy, Johann. But I also was exposed to 
another version of race theory when I learned about how people were categorized during the time of the Holocaust. Everybody knows about Hitler and the rise of Nazism. Um, they used to teach in elementary schools this whole thing about race. And they actually said that um, the people that they wanted to destroy, the genocide that happened and the imprisonment and all of the, the, the you can't even think about the atrocities that took place during the Holocaust. They had taught the young people in school and the adults as well that there was a hierarchy of, of humanness and that black people and Jewish people and other people as well were at the bottom of the list, less than human, literally less than human, right? Um, and I, I, you know, I, I here, in, here in Los Angeles, I have an association with a museum here it's called the Museum of Tolerance, and I love giving them a little plug because they're a fantastic organization. But, you know, they have some exhibits of that very thing that I'm talking about, where there's like a map of human faces. And at the, at the top of that face is the Aryan race, which is the white-skinned folk. And at the bottom of that race is, it looks like a Neanderthal man that looks, it's African, but they look like a caveman, literally because that's the, the, the lack of development and the small brain and all of those things were taught literally that dark-skinned people had smaller brains. Oh my goodness, it, I don't even, don't get me started as they say. So it didn't stop with racism here in the United States around slavery. It's continued to other parts of the world, all right? And it's been picked up and used maybe with different wording, whenever people were being persecuted and um, things awful and terrible were being done to them. There's usually the excuse or the reasoning is, is that they're less than human. The idea of slavery started with, you know, on one hand, people think that slaves were uh, unintelligent. And of course, anybody would be unintelligent if they weren't allowed to learn to read and write, if they weren't allowed to actually develop their potential as a human being. If you didn't actually have a way of labeling that this particular brain came from a person of African descent, or this particular brain came from a person of Asian descent, or this particular brain came from a person of European descent, and you had removed their skin and you were only looking at their brain, you would not be able to tell whose brain that was. <laughs> unless you had an agenda unless you had an agenda and unless yes. you're trying to prove something to uphold dehumanization which is exactly what Blumenbach was doing but anybody else who's just objectively wanting to understand and learn of course as soon as you get under the skin you have no idea what race because race isn't even a thing <laughs> scientifically no, you know you would have to look into that whole person's ancestry and it's a whole and even in then we're such a blended meld of so many different lineage lines uh especially for many of us like you who come from really mixed race backgrounds it's just how do we fit into one of these five categories 
mm-hmm. of people. It's ridiculous. Act two, what has race given us? Throughout history, race has never maintained a consistent definition. Racial classifications change as political and financial priorities emerge. Which brings us to our next question. What has race given us? Racism is as follows, an attitude towards individuals and groups of peoples which posits a direct and linear connection between physical and mental qualities. It therefore attributes to those individuals and groups of peoples collective traits, physical, mental, and moral, which are constant and unalterable by human will. Benjamin Isaac. A turning point in racism's ability to inflict harm on this continent came after Bacon's Rebellion in 1677, as two categories for the poor emerged. New laws begin to appear separating black slaves from European indentured servants. Slavery becomes permanent and inheritable for Negroes, and black people are punished more harshly for crimes. Poor whites are given new rights and opportunities, including as overseers to police slaves. From PBS's Race, The Power of Illusion. As long as race is something only applied to non-white peoples, as long as white people are not racially seen and named, they, slash we, function as a human norm. Other people are raced. We are just people. White, by Richard Dyer. Again, you know, as we're working with this material around race, I swear I have to take as many deep breaths as I possibly can here. It's quite amazing to think about the concept of raced, right? It's almost like being erased. Um, Although they're spelled differently, it feels like being raced is a way to erase people, to erase dark-skinned people. Mm. people of African descent, black-skinned and brown-skinned people, you know. Um, So everything else is normal or uh, you don't even have to use the word normal. My experience, especially talking about what it was like when I was coming up as a, a child and a teenager, is that nobody had to define that the people that had the nice cars and houses, as I spoke about before, were normal. They were, they just were. Nobody had to name that. Whereas in the newspaper, if somebody had an accomplishment and they were of African descent or what we called Negro or, or Black or Afro or, or Afro-American or African-American, there's been so many different names even in my lifetime, they say that. They say that, you know, the African-American doctor uh, received this award or the Negro doctor received this award, whatever it was. They had to designate who the people were in terms of what their race was because it wasn't normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. it's almost like it's a, a qualifier. There has to be qualifiers. I mean, even now in today's world. There's qualifiers um, in in terms of when something happens, especially in on the news reels, the news feed. 
they designate that the people were whatever race or ethnicity or background that they were from a cultural point of view. Mm-hmm. It's designated. And if a white person is having an experience, you either hear their name or nothing. Um, because it is so, it's so normalized that every the standard of measure is whiteness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole idea of white, you know, the, calling people white, that was not the way it was. People were Italians and they were Polish and they were Irish and they were Scottish and they were Japanese or whatever they were, right? They were not, and, and I shouldn't put Japanese in there because those are not usually white-skinned people. But what I'm trying to say is, is that it was people were designated by their um, nationality uh, or their ethnicity but not their race. They were not designated by their race. So there was a time when there were signs in shops that said no Irish people allowed. There was even a time when they said no Catholics. But I think somewhere around the the middle of the 20th century is when the whiteness was installed and people started to be called white because before that they weren't called white. And again, that could be a part of the same story because they didn't need to be called white because this um, Anglo-Saxon Protestant person was the norm or the standard. And everybody that was outside of Anglo-Saxon Protestant were the deviations or those on the other side of the divide. And so they needed to be designated by what country they came from such as their nationality or the nationality of their family. Mm. Um, Again, it was normalizing the dominant grouping of people, because I won't even say the dominant folks. So when we say the dominant, we can say it's the dominant culture, but it isn't necessarily the majority culture in certain situations. Uh, That's probably what the fear is at this point, because there's a large number of the population is growing here in the United States. And there's going to be uh, sometime soon, I think 2050 was the the year that I can remember thinking, hearing, reading about this and then thinking about that to myself, that there's going to be more brown skinned people who live in the United States and there's gonna be white skinned people who live in the United States somewhere around that time. So whiteness whiteness so what has racism given us more than we can name but we will try the trail of tears jim crow de-indianizing schools apartheid redlining lynching tenement house tulsa massacre red summer of 1919 tibetan genocide bosnian genocide rwandan genocide indeed far more than we can name You know, if I just think about what race has given me in my life, I would say that um, a deceased child whose life had only started, it's given me a granddaughter who has a diagnosis of mental illness to some extent, meaning that um, she thinks she's normal, but she's been diagnosed with bipolar one. It gives me daily fear that her child, um, her son, who's now six years old, 
is growing up fast and he's a, a very rambunctious and very full of himself young black child and he's a boy and so I worry about him um, that's only my own life it gives me every time before my son's passing before he ended his life with suicide when the phone would ring it gives it gave me a minute each time the phone would ring when I wasn't expecting a call that I might have bad news it gives me the opportunity to um, be with people in my world who also experience loss and um, harm and incarceration and oh my goodness I mean I could go on what has race given me just one person and I'm not the I have I would say that I'm somewhere in the middle of the road I'm not the most oppressed African-American person in the United States um, I'm not the least oppressed either, but I certainly have a lot of privileges and a, there are a lot of doors that have been opened for me. So I move in the world in a way that people might think is full of freedom and liberation, but yet and still, I know that in, at any time that can be interrupted. Wow. Thank you for that gift sharing. Yeah, I just want to take a pause and like take that in and feel that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to repeat this again. Do you know, at any moment, at any point in time, I am not surprised to get the news that somebody that I'm close to, a friend or family member, or even a colleague at work, who's a person with brown or black skin, or even red skin, um, in, in these days and times, yellow as well, could give me the news that somebody was harmed or there was a tragedy of death just because of who they are and merely because of their identity. And that's what racism, that's what racism, that's what race does to people's lives. Ah. Uh. I can only put it, it's hard to d describe in words. I can only kind of do it with my body. But there's this both wanting so deeply to understand and hear the pain of that and really take it all the way in. And there's also this protection of my heart that I feel that's like, it feels like, um, it just feels so different than what I've experienced and so there's a way that I'm just really yeah just sitting with that and letting it really come all the way in yeah yeah again I, I always appreciate who you are as a person and, and how you show up but I want to say this and I'm going to use the word but I don't like to even say but in this moment, I want to take us somewhere. I want to take us somewhere. I want to maybe even help you to think about this and not that it's my responsibility to do so, but I want to offer, give an offering in this regard. So think about when we talk about people that are, they live their life in a bubble. You know, we've seen movies or something like that where the person is completely protected from the outside world. They don't have to worry about this. They don't have to 
fret about that, their life is completely taken care of. They live in a protective environment, a protective bubble. And not I'm not saying this about you, Jillian, but think about the fact that the way that racism has um, uh, unfolded itself in our life, in our world, all the way from the past up into the present, is that there are a group or groupings of people who get to live in protective bubbles. And there's groupings of people that are on the other side of that, that are in a certain way, almost always unprotected. So when I say that at any point in time, the phone could ring and things would have been normal a moment before, or I was going about my day a, a moment before, and I might get the news that someone was shot or incarcerated or whatever that may be, that there's that always looming somewhere in the space of my existence that that possibility is there. So there is no bubble. There is no bubble. I can pretend like there is. I can imagine that my life is insulated and that I'm warm and cozy and have all my needs met and things are intact in my world and they're going to stay that way. And then it can evaporate in the matter of seconds because that's what race does to people's lives that are people of color. BIPOC folk. That's what it does. There are no bubbles. And that's why I believe it's hard for um, our counterparts with white skin to really get in touch with what is it that we're really um, experiencing. You could, like you said, I could never completely grok what it is that you go through or what it is that's your life your life experiences about it's not your fault it's not your fault it's not anybody's fault who's white bodied or white skin in the way that i'm talking about this particular uh metaphor it's because they're in the inside of the bubble and i'm in the outside of the bubble and therefore, those two environments and those two worlds and everything that makes up those two worlds is completely different. This came up with me and you yesterday. Not you necessarily, but just in our, our um, Equity to Inclusion and Diversity Committee meeting of the George Floyd video that you shared. And my whole body just went into this such an intense uh, somatic response of like, of that bubble being popped just for a moment or getting a taste of what that's like. And my nervous system is fragile. <laughs> like there is a white fragility in my nervous system and a, and a sensitivity to being able to really let in the reality. And so there's a way that I want to be both really kind and slow with myself. And as you said, yeah, just keep reminding myself it's not my fault it's not my responsibility to change everything because that's the other place I can go to is this yeah as I said this narcissistic thing like wow I really love Aaliyah and care deeply for you and want you to feel 
protected and safe. And now I have to change all my plans this weekend and everything has to stop. <laughs> and I have to like that activism, you know, yes. that yes. can come, that cre can create so many more issues than just slowing down and contacting um, the humanity. Act three. How do we heal the collective trauma of racism? I didn't choose my race. What about you? My race is on my birth certificate, is on my license, but no one ever asked me. The idea of our race is placed upon us the moment we come out of the womb and we inherit all of its racist history whether our ancestors used it to oppress or our ancestors survived this oppression. But what we do tomorrow with this inheritance is in fact our choice. The COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in the death of over 500,000 Americans. The impact of COVID-19 is felt most severely in communities of color where the social impact of the pandemic has been most extreme. Yet the disparities seen over the past year were not the result of COVID-19. Instead, the pandemic illuminated inequities that have existed for generations and revealed for all of America a known but often unaddressed epidemic impacting public health, racism. Racism is a public health crisis. The Center for Disease Control the human race can change the fate of what racism has in store. The human race does not have to keep suffering the traumas of racism. How do we make the choice to heal? As a black woman, you know, my, my thing is, there have been movements in my lifetime. I've been living for decades. So there's been movements in my lifetime of black people because I identify as Black, African-American, why don't we just go and do our own thing, you know? Like go back to Africa or be in our own communities or, you know, only buy Black or whatever it is. And that's not the world I want. I want us to be together. I don't want to have a good life separate, right? I don't want you to have a good life separate. I want us to have a life that is equitable so that we are all here on a level playing field and can show up in our magnificence no matter who we are and what we look like. That's like where I come from. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just, I, I can imagine that it's stressful sometimes to try and figure that out. Like there's these puzzles that you're always trying to crack codes around. You know, that, that uh, television program called Survivor there's a way that um, being exposed to the elements, I'm using this as a metaphor, that if you've never been exposed to the elements, it's really hard for you to uh, fathom that you could exist without having knowledge of where this is going to come from or that's going to come from or whatever, right? And so when you speak about fragility, you know, there's a very popular book out there called White Fragility. But when you when you speak about fragility in this conversation, what I'm hearing from you is that you didn't recognize how uninitiated you are 
you were talking about initiation about mm-hmm. the things that have gone on yeah. in my life. So on the opposite of that, you're uninitiated and people like you, uh, white skinned or white bodied folk are uninitiated in the realities of what it really means to be raced. And, uh, and uh, again, we want to be able to bridge that. I mean, what we're doing is we're seeking to bridge my experience with your maybe lack of experience. I'm not sure if I'm talking about this right. And your understanding with my lack of understanding as to what life has been like for you. And what we're doing is wanting to give the whatever it's going to take, the filler that's going to actually help us to close those gaps and move us closer together and give us a frame of reference that we can share knowing that our healing is going to look different that we might have to take different medicine again using a metaphor but that we we're going to go to the same clinic and in going to the same clinic as friends as collaborators as partners in the work you know i'll know that what your prescription is is a little bit different than mine and what your my prescription is is a little bit different than yours but if we can stay together in the clinic that we can figure this all out or at least we can start and it's this you know i hold out the hope and the belief actually even the conviction that if we really apply ourselves that we could do this that we could do this and so i i just want to say um yeah those are the circumstances of the reality of this work what we're talking about now and all we can do about it is just show up here together that's like where i come from Mm -hmm. and so i'm just i i can imagine that it's stressful sometimes just the complexity and the intricacy and the layeredness of of all those things that we hold our past our current our future wishes and desires um some things are conscious some things are unconscious i mean it's a lot isn't it Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is and it's really the conversation that I want to be having right now and for the rest of my life Liberating Race was produced by the Shift Network and was developed by Joy Donnell, Aliyah Mahone and Jillian Shelley our story producer and editor is A. Kirsten audio mixing by Timothy Dixon our narrations were performed by Kaisa Fern, Nick Matos and Amy Kirsten Shift 